morning, everyone. Nice to be here. Thanks, Rob, for the welcome and leading us. Um, I like uh, doing the pulpit swap. I think it's good for uh, my folk back at Ashford to hear from someone other than me. And, uh, well, I hope you think the same. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I'm going to talk about the, the spirit-filled life this week. I think next week you'll have Andy Savile from All Saints Laylam. He's going to be speaking on the word-shaped life, and then Nick will be here for the third of the, uh, the three, the cross-shaped life. So it would be really helpful if you have the Bible open. At uh, Galatians chapter 5, I'm going to read from verse 13 to 26. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Do keep... Uh, the Bible open at uh, that page, if you would, that'd be good. Now, you don't have to have been around uh, Christian circles for very long before you hear someone say, oh, I really felt led by the Spirit to do such and such. Now, such and such might be uh, starting a new job. It could be uh, starting a relationship or indeed ending a relationship. It could be uh, moving house, changing church, giving money or performing some act of kindness. To be led by the Spirit, therefore, is uh, understood by many Christians uh, as receiving some sort of divine guidance to make a decision in life, or many decisions in life. Now, to treat the third person of the Trinity as a spiritual advisor to help us organize our lives uh, is to misunderstand his role. The Holy Spirit, referred to uh, by the Lord Jesus as another counsellor, another meaning just like him, will always glorify and magnify the Lord Jesus. He will always guide God's people into truth. So to be led by the Spirit actually means to be empowered to live a genuine and authentic Christian life. Now, I know this sounds a little bit less exciting than divine promptings, but this is the essential work of the Spirit in the life of the Christian. Now, Matthew's Gospel, one, I think the only reference 
to Jesus being led by the Spirit, we read this. Then Jesus led by the Spirit into the desert or the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. In the only, I say, in this reference, Jesus is led by the Spirit into a place where he'd do battle with the enemy. The Spirit empowers him for that conflict, and what was true for Jesus is true for us, his followers. Now, to see this, we're dropping anchor in this perhaps familiar passage in Galatians. I want us to see three things. Firstly, um, why is conflict inevitable? Verses 16 to 18. Why is conflict inevitable? Secondly, what are the sides in the conflict? What do they look like? Verses uh, 19 to 23. And then finally, how can I win? That's an important question, isn't it? How can I win in this conflict? So firstly, why is the conflict inevitable? Now, every human being on the face of this planet, we all face conflicts. Okay, it's conflicts because of a conscience. We all face moral dilemmas, don't we, from time to time. So when I was an eight-year-old and my mates in the village I grew up in suggested that we go to the sweet shop and steal some blackjacks and fruit salads. Do you remember those? Um, I had a moral dilemma. Part of me wanted to do it because I didn't want my mates calling me a wimp, but another part of me didn't want to do it because I knew it wasn't the right thing to do. Now, I wasn't a Christian. But there was a moral dilemma, and everyone faces those sorts of dilemmas, not always nicking sweets from the sweet shop. But for the followers of Jesus, there is another layer of conflict that's far deeper, far fiercer, and is relentless. It's the conflict between our old nature and our new nature. It's the conflict between what we are naturally because of our first birth and what we are supernaturally because of our rebirth through the Holy Spirit. Now, this conflict between the sinful nature and the spirit is one unique to the Christian because only the Christian has the Holy Spirit. Paul in Romans 8, when he says, You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the spirit, if the spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So what we're looking at here is really that unique battle in the Christian between the old and the new. Now, Paul tops and tails these verses, uh, 16 to 18, with a very similar statement. He says, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. And then in verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under law. Now, those two sentences are really mirrors of each other. To live by the Spirit and to be led by the Spirit are really the same thing. So therefore, to not gratify the desires of the sinful nature is to not live under law. Now, we have to just press the pause button at that point and just understand a little bit of the Galatian context. Why is Paul writing this to these believers? Now, back in chapter 1, verse 6 of this letter, Paul delivers one of his strongest rebukes found in any of his letters. It's right at the beginning. He says this to the Galatians. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. See, these Galatian Christians were being tempted back into Judaism and its practices, not least living under the law, back under the law of Moses. 
Now, this is so serious in Paul's book that he regards it as deserting the true gospel and settling for something, he says, that's no gospel at all. It's not good news at all. Now, to live under the law and therefore to gratify the desires of the sinful nature is to live in opposition to and in denial of the true gospel. It is to not trust Christ as your saviour, but instead to try to save yourself. So it's clear that the sinful nature and the spirit are simply worlds apart. Okay? There is no common ground, if you like. There's no compromise position between these two. That explains why the conflict is inevitable. One writer puts it like this. While the flesh glorifies, adores, and lusts after all kinds of created things, conditions, and people, the spirit glorifies and yearns for Jesus. Their desires are completely different. Now, there we go. Do you remember Venn diagrams at school? Yeah, Venn diagrams, Jeff nodding. Venn diagrams, those two would be mutually exclusive, wouldn't they? They, they have no common ground. So let's say uh, the, the blue are all even numbers, the red are all odd numbers. There's no common ground, okay. So we've made the blue the sinful nature, we've, we've made the red um, the spirit. Wouldn't it be great when we come to faith in Christ that everything belonging to the old sinful nature, all the lusts and desires of the flesh, that was done away with and ended, and then we moved to this new life of the Spirit, and there was no common ground. Wouldn't that be great? Hands up if that is your experience as a Christian. A few giggles. No, it's not, is it? Next slide. This is more like it, isn't it? There is a crossover, there is a hatch bit in the middle... That is a conflict zone, if you like. Because as Christians, we experience the old nature, but also, wonderfully, the new nature, the new nature of the Spirit. But as we see really clearly here in these first verses, they are in conflict with each other all the time. So much so, verse 17, he says this, they're in conflict with each other, so you're not able to do whatever you want. You're not able to do whatever you want. Now, this describes the life of the Christian, doesn't it? It is not always glorious sunsets, ever-flowing streams, and bright blue skies. I don't wish to have a go at the backdrop to our songs and the lyrics when they come up, but occasionally we ought to slip in a war zone as the backdrop. Put Mosul or put uh, Baghdad up there, and and you're reminded... Actually, it is a conflict, living the Christian life. Conflict between the new and the old. It is a conflict that is inevitable, and I think we're all in agreement with that. Secondly, what are the two sides like in this conflict? The sinful nature and the spirit. If those terms sound a little vague, well, Paul now puts a bit of flesh on the bone. He begins with the acts of the sinful nature, which he describes as obvious. You know, they're clear-cut, and they fall into these helpful four categories. The first three relate to sexual sin, sexual immorality, which is sex outside of the one-flesh union of marriage between a man and a woman. 
That is sexual immorality. There is impurity, which is unnatural sexual relations. And there is debauchery, which is uncontrolled sexual appetite, if you like. So the first three are sexual sins. The next two are, if you like, religious sins. There is idolatry, which is the worship of any created thing as opposed to our creator. And there is witchcraft or sorcery, which is uh, tampering with evil powers. The next, uh, what is it, eight, they are all social sins, and they don't need much commentary, do they? Hatred, discourse, jealous, discord rather, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. And the last two are alcohol-related sins, drunkenness and orgies. The orgies here are drinking orgies, binges, if you like. But note the list doesn't end there, does it? It it ends with, and the like. So it's not an exhaustive list. You don't read that list and think, tick, tick, no, I'm okay. And the like. It's a representative list. And it's very interesting, isn't it, that Paul tops and tails this whole section uh, by describing some particular sins that these Galatians were battling with. Desires of the sinful nature. What does he say in verse 15? Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So a clear warning there. And then in verse 26, right at the end of the passage, but let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. So he's topping and tailing it with some other sins that would be a part of the sinful nature. And then Paul adds, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now we need to understand what he's saying there and what he isn't saying here. This side of glory, no Christian is going to live a blameless, sin-free, faultless life. Okay? We will all stumble, we will all fall, we will all have the odd lapse and there will be particular sins we perhaps wrestle with that others don't. What Paul's describing here is not a lapse, but the trajectory of a person's life. You see, this grim list is is what increasingly characterizes a person's life. And this is the warning. This person will not inherit the kingdom of God. What he's really saying is this person is not really a follower of Christ. They're showing it by their life. Now, it is a challenging list, isn't it? Because as the church and as the Christians, there's certain sins we make a bigger deal of. I think in general, we make a big deal of sexual sin and we make a big deal of alcohol sin. You know, they're the two kind of very obvious no-go areas. But I wonder... um, God seems to be putting his finger on a lot of other sins, doesn't he, here? Some of those, those in the middle there, some of those social sins, the religious sin. You know, are we, are we good at perhaps calling out people within the fellowship who are very divisive? Who, you know, kind of whenever there's any contact with them, it's always, you're always treading on eggshells, it's always sparks fly. We say, well, that's just as much sin as getting drunk. The consequences may differ, but it's still there in Paul's list. Well, what about um, those who, if you like, are driven by 
past hurts and anger. People have upset them. And and it's been like, well, you know what? I'm just not going to have anything to do with that person ever again. And yet they're in the same fellowship. I know, we don't go there. You don't want to know what happened. That's just as bad a problem. So we're in danger, aren't we, of elevating certain ones of those at the expense of others. Paul clearly lays them all out before us, doesn't he? So that's the acts of the sinful nature. They are obvious. What about the other side? What about the, the, uh, the fruit of the Spirit? Well, let me read again there. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. I've got the, other, uh, the older version. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. If the purpose of the law is to restrain and guide, then really there's no deterrent needed here, is there? Because this is being lived out. Now, you may have noticed Paul says fruit, singular, as opposed to plural, meaning it comes in one package. And a friend this week said, you know, imagine it being like an orange. There is one orange, but it's made up of a lot of different segments. And so that is, that is it with the fruit. We receive the fruit of the Spirit, and we are capable of showing all of these different characteristics in our life. Now, just as the acts of the sinful nature can be separated out, so too can the fruit. The first three relate to our attitude towards God. We have love for God because of the Spirit. We have joy in God and we have peace with God. The second three are our attitude to each other in the body of Christ. We are patient with one another. We are kind to one another. We are good towards one another. And the last three perhaps reflect our attitude toward ourselves. We are faithful, we're gentle, and we are self-controlled. Now, I did say a few moments ago, this side of glory, we won't perfectly live the Christian life. We will all fall and fail. But I didn't want to, by saying that, give everyone a sort of a get-out-of-jail card, say, oh, it doesn't matter how I live. It does matter how we live. One writer puts it like this, if my Christian testimony is to have any credibility... There must be moral evidence of the presence of the Spirit within me. The fruit has got to be seen. The church, you see, is to be collectively a a distinctive community. And the fruit of the Spirit is what makes us distinctive. The qualities of love, joy, peace and patience, they are unique to the Christian and not freely available to the world. So as the wider community of Staines gets to look at Staines Kong or up in Ashford, Ashford community looks at Ashford Kong, do they see this? Do they look in here and say, you know what, they are different, not weird and wacky, they do love each other. They do have a certain peace in their lives which really is quite elusive because I certainly don't have that. And they're so kind to each other. It's sickening. They're sickeningly kind to each other. I don't mind if people say that of Ashford Kong. I wish they'd say it a bit more often. You know? But we are to be distinctive, and the fruit of the Spirit is that distinctiveness. So those are the two sides in the conflict. The the acts of the sinful nature, which are obvious, and the fruit of the Spirit. Let's lastly look at how can we win. The conflict's inevitable. We've seen what the sides look like. How can I win? And we need to look at verses 24 and 25. 
Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step or walk with the Spirit. Now, verse 17 summed up the Christian life. Uh, It would be pretty miserable, wouldn't it? That uh, So you're not able to do whatever you want. And if that was the conclusion of it all, I wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. You're just on a loser from the get-go. But thankfully, that is not where it ends, is it? The two things we must do. The first is we must crucify the sinful nature, and we need to understand what that is. And secondly, we must walk with the Holy Spirit. Now, to crucify the sinful nature, some of you may say, well, isn't that what Christ did for us? Well, he did. Galatians 2.2, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. So when Christ died on the cross, that was my death too. That was something done for me. But in 524, it's something done by me. And it's a little, it, it's a little different. So what we're looking at in 524 is something we do. He says, those who belong to Christ have crucified the sinful nature. What he's describing here is that decisive point in your life when you turn from trusting yourself and you turn decisively and put your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. At that point, what you were doing with that old sinful nature was, is crucifying it. It was nailed to the cross. It was left to die. That's when we first believe. That's why he speaks in that tense. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the sinful nature. So when I choose to indulge that sinful nature as a Christian and submit again to its desires, what I'm really doing is taking that dead old nature down from the cross, kind of dusting it down a bit and trying to breathe new life back into it. Let let me give you a sort of graphic example. You know, you... Every time you do a shop, you know, what we tend to do is we tend to clear out the fridge at that point. Then you discover you bought stuff you already had and all that. But there in the bottom of the, uh, the fruit and veg drawer, you know, at the bottom it's starting to get a bit yucky and you think, oh, I've got to throw this stuff out. So you throw out all that old, dying, decaying fruit and veg. Goes in the dustbin, okay. What would it be like if that week you come home from work and you think, oh, I'm a bit peckish, you look in the cupboards, don't fancy anything there. I know what I'll have. I'll have some of that dead, decaying, decaying fruit and veg that I threw out in the dustbins. You go outside, you root around, and there it is, stinking in the bottom of the bin. You pull it out and you start eating that. Do you do that? Of course you don't. No, you leave it there to die. But what we do when we indulge the sinful nature as Christians, it's like going in the bin and getting that dead, decaying thing out. So oh, let's breathe new life back into this. It's bizarre, isn't it? We shouldn't be doing it. What we have to learn to do in terms of, of the sinful nature is leave that sinful nature there on the cross to die. That's the only place for it. Jesus put it like this, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Now he's saying there, what he's saying there is not some sort of symbolic act of willingness on our part, but he is saying daily. The Christian life begins in repentance and faith and it continues in repentance and faith. Now the great difficulty we face is how do we do this? You see, at a heart level, 
our sinful nature, we've got quite used to it. In fact, we've had it all our lives. It's like a comfort blanket to a baby. A 19th century Scottish preacher called Thomas Chalmers, he put his finger on the issue when he said this, the love of the world cannot be expunged or got rid of by a mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness. So the world's not going to appear worthless just by kind of you realising it. But may it not be supplanted by the love of that which is more worthy than itself. We'll only stop loving the world when a greater love breaks into our hearts. We'll only stop wanting to feed and get that old sinful nature back to life again when we discover a greater love, and that is, of course, the love there on the left-hand side, a love for Christ. It's only when Christ, to us, is more beautiful and wonderful and greater than anything else that the sinful nature will lose its grip. It will lose its attraction. We will not want to desire it and try to breathe new life back into it. So that's the first thing. We must crucify that sinful nature. It's a, it, it, we did it decisively when we first came to faith, but we just got to leave it there to die. The second thing we must do is to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Walk with the Holy Spirit. Now, the original uh, word there is not walk in a rambling sense, sort of here and there, but rather is to line up behind. Hence, I've got that picture on the right-hand side. You know, we often on our sports screens, yesterday we watched England and Scotland perhaps, and you see the teams lining up there in the, uh, the tunnel. I wasn't making a point, by the way, in mentioning that one. Um, there they are in the tunnel. They're lined up behind who? The captain. Okay, they're lined up behind the captain, the sports team. And it's the same here that Paul's driving at. He says... As you walk with the Spirit, it means you're lining up behind the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what is going to guide you and lead you into and through life. So put to death the old and line yourself up and be led by the Holy Spirit. Now that is not some sort of mysterious existence, okay? To be led by the Spirit should be active, it should be purposeful, and it should be clearly visible, okay? So to walk with the Holy Spirit will affect, for instance, what you choose to read, what you choose to watch on television or on your computer or on your iPad, what you choose to post on Facebook or on social media will be led by the Holy Spirit. What you choose to do with your body will be a clear evidence of being led by the Holy Spirit. Your friendships, the friendships you form, will be led by the Holy Spirit. Your commitment to following the Lord Jesus in, in, in terms of your prayer life, in terms of reading the scriptures, in terms of your commitment to the body of Christ, will be clear evidence of being led by the Holy Spirit. So we remove the mystery from this expression of, oh yeah, it's some sort of mysterious. No, it's clearly seen. The fruit will be seen in our lives. So to crucify the sinful nature on the one hand, to leave it, to die, don't try to breathe life into it, and, and going with that, to live in step with the Holy Spirit, following the Holy Spirit, those two things together, it's not either or, it's both of them together, that is how we live the authentic Christian life. That is how we win 
The conflict's inevitable, but what are we going to do in that conflict? We want to win in that conflict. And we must do these things. Now, the other day, last slide, the other day, I, um, I got to go in one of those. Does anyone know what sort of car that is? Tesla. You're absolutely right. It's a Tesla, okay? Um, I'm not particularly carry, okay? Take it or leave it sort of thing. Some people are. But it's a very smart car. Uh, it was a very expensive car. The driver told me how expensive it was. Bit of a yawn. And apparently it was very quick. He was telling us what it does 0 to 60 in. And it was 3 point mm, seconds. I thought, that sounds pretty quick. We're on our way home from somewhere. And uh, he's, uh, we're on this straight road. Uh, he knew the, the, the road. No one else around. And he said, are you ready, guys? I said, what? And then he, he put his foot down. And honestly, I have never been in anything. I've been on stealth at, you know, Thorpe Park and stuff. This knocks spots off that. My head went back into the seat as we just took off. Absolutely took off. That was power. It was power. Most of us, metaphorically, as Christians, we are pootling around in one litre Ford Fiestas. Hopefully I haven't insulted Ford Fiesta drivers in saying that. The emphasis is, is on the one litre, not the brand. Okay? We're pootling around in one litre Ford Fiestas when actually God has said, I have a Tesla for you to drive. By that I mean, do you understand the power that I have given you to live? Paul writes to the Ephesians, doesn't he? The power that raised Christ from the dead is the incomparably great power that is at work in those who believe. So if we're poodling around in our one-litre Ford Fiestas, it's because we are not crucifying the sinful nature. We're indulging it. We're not lined up behind the Holy Spirit. We're ignoring the Holy Spirit. When in reality, Paul is saying here, you put that to death. When you came to Christ, you decisively, that old nature was crucified. Leave it there to die. And walk in step with the Spirit. You wonder how stains might be different. If you guys live like that. How Ashford might be different. If we began to live like that. How Layla might be different. And people would see in us the sort of community that Christ wants us to be. Let me pray. Dear Lord God, we uh, thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you. you. You tell us the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. And this is the word that was preached to us. So Lord, please help us, Lord, not to forget it, but to think it over, to chew it over, to talk it over, to talk it out with you, Lord. May we repent of those other loves, those idols that perhaps have taken control of our hearts, and may we turn again to the Lord Jesus, the one who laid down his life for us, and find our identity, our purpose, and our meaning in him. And Lord, may we be a people 
who walk in step with your spirit day by day, year by year. And Lord, may we give fruit and bear the fruit of your spirit's presence within us individually and most importantly, Lord, collectively as your body. Here in Staines, in Ashford, in Leyland, we pray. And it's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.